Well, Jimmy, it's good having you back. Sharon, it's good having you back too. All right. Well, last week we talked about faith. You know, faith is believing and acting on what God says. To know what God says, you need to hear from Him. <laughs> to hear from Him, you need to read the Word of God, listen to biblical preaching, and mingle with the people of God, the church. Just this week, I was talking to one of our members about how we do hear from God by being around other members of the church who also have the Spirit of God indwelling them. You know, uh, if we want to hear from the Spirit of God, maybe we ought to hang out where the Spirit of God is manifest. And that's not 1400 West 5th Street. It's, it's where the church is, the, the church, the people. And so when we mingle with the people of God, we are around the Spirit of God, and we can hear from God in that way too. So we talked about what faith is, but we also talked about what it is not. It's not wishful thinking. It's not wishful thinking with some religious verbiage mixed in there. It's not a power that we have internally to change things. And also it's not a misapplication of Scripture. Now you'll hear people's quote from Philippians 4.13 sometimes. They'll say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I like that verse. That's a great verse. But to understand this verse, you have to understand the context and so if we read, starting at Philippians 4.10, what we get is, I rejoiced, and this is Paul writing, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now, that now at length you have received, you have revived, I'm sorry, I can't read this morning, your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's saying, I have learned to be content in my situation. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So we see when we read this in context that the spirit of God in us, Christians can then learn to be content in whatever our situation is. It's not that we can recite one verse out of context, and then accomplish anything by believing something that God didn't say. And, and really, intuitively, we know that's just silly, don't we? we? We think, you can't just decide you're going to be able to do anything by quoting this one verse and believing really hard. We know that's silly. And that's why a lot of people think Christians are silly. It's because too many Christians are silly. Speaking of silliness, we're going to we're going to look at pride today. And pride is not merely silliness. Pride is, is really a lot worse than that. It makes us foolish. So before we get into our discussion of pride, let's pray. Because pride is a blind spot. And the thing about a blind spot is you don't know it's there. You can't see it, right? So we're going to have to uh, depend on the Spirit of God to reveal it to us. So pray with me. Lord, uh, I pray that you would speak today. Uh, that you would speak through your word as you have been doing for centuries. Father, we pray that we would learn, uh, that we would be moldable, adaptable. We would hear and be transformed. Lord, we don't want to sit and soak and sour in the word. We want to take it in. We want it to conform us. And then we want to share it with others. So, Father, I pray that we would be a conduit 
rather than a swamp of your word. Father, that you would build into us that we might build into others. That you would build into us that we might transform uh, those around us by spreading the kingdom. Lord, we pray that you will do your work in and through us, but we pray that you would prepare us by the teaching of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen. All right, before we get into our discussion of pride, we're going to look at a a couple of strange verses that we didn't quite have time to look at last week. Starting in Luke 9, 43 through 45, And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now this was after Jesus had cast out this uh, demon that his followers did not have the faith to cast out, meaning Jesus told them they could, told them they had the authority, and yet they didn't believe, so they couldn't cast him out. Well, Jesus could, without any problem. And so they were marveling at the things that he was doing. Jesus said this to the disciples in verse 44, Let these words sink into your ears. Okay, I don't know how you say that more emphatically. He said, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them, so they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him anything about this saying. Now you've got to read that and go, how thick can these guys be? I mean, this was about as explicit as could be. But I think the key is found right here. You know, Jesus says, let these words sink in. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them. Okay? It's not that they couldn't understand the words. It's that God was concealing the truth of all that this brought on. He was concealing that from them. And of course, I'm not saying that Jesus was trying to get a message across and God the Father was thwarting his message. What I am saying is Jesus had to tell them this, had to tell them this emphatically so that they would recall afterward and go, gosh, he told us every single bit of this. (laughs) But right at this point, it was being put into their ears. Jesus was saying, let it sink in, but it wasn't sinking all the way to their brain, unfortunately. So it was being hidden from them at this point. But nevertheless, Jesus was saying it so that after the resurrection, they'd go, gosh, how did we miss this? He told us this was going to happen. All right, now let's look with eyes wide open at the pride uh, that's involved in these following verses and what pride does to us. In verses 46 through 56, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for no one who is against you, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. 
Now this is Jesus, the Jew, on his way to Jerusalem, stopping in a Samaritan town. The Samaritans did not like the Jews. They certainly did not like the fact that the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. And they, their tradition was that they worshipped in a different place. So it's not shocking that the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus. But it says they didn't receive him because he was en route to Jerusalem to worship. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. So pride makes us believe that we are better than other people. You know, Jesus just told them, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of men. And what are they worried about? (laughs) They're worried about which one of them is the greatest, right? So were it not for grace, folks, that is the same thing that we would do. That is the key to understanding how to not have a prideful heart. We have to understand the source of our salvation is not within us. The source of our salvation is God and His grace. And if you really get that deep down in your soul... You can avoid this sin of pride. Probably not all the time, but it's the way to understand it and the way to overcome it. Now, what were these guys bragging about? They were saying, who's the greatest? I mean, it was one of them saying, you know, when, when Jesus sent us out, I, I, was, I was doing this healing. Somebody else says, well, I was casting out demons. Uh, somebody else was saying, well, those three guys were going, well, we got picked to go see the transfiguration. Now, none of this was their own doing. All they could have possibly been comparing was the work of God in them. So what did they have to brag about except what God was doing in them? You know, our pride robs God of glory that rightfully belongs to him because we take credit for it. So, you know, imagine the absurdity of this conversation. They couldn't heal anybody. They couldn't cast out any demons. They didn't have any power like that until Jesus said... You now have my power to go and do this. And then they're sitting around arguing. One of them's going, dude, I I healed five blind guys. (laughs) Another's going, well, I mean, that's cool, but but I healed six deaf people. And this other guy's going, man, I did the hard lifting. I cast out three demons while we were out there. (laughs) And they're comparing notes, trying to figure out who is the biggest and the best among them. And then, of course, uh, Peter, James, and John say, well, I mean, that's good and all. But Jesus didn't take you to the Mount of Transfiguration. He took me. So obviously, we are among the greatest. And this is right after Jesus said, Hey, I'm about to be handed over into the hands of men. Verse 47, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side. Now rabbis did not mess with children. And only Rabbi Jesus had women followers. Children are precious and we love them. But in Jewish society at this time, they were quite low. They were the lowest, actually, on the pecking order. Now, they don't have the intellectual capacity to stimulate you with their conversation, right? Now, they're cute and sometimes really sweet and fun to talk to, but they don't dazzle you with the depth and complexity of their thoughts, right? Uh, They don't produce any goods or services. Uh, They don't contribute to the family financially. 
Now, I know that they are immeasurably precious. I'm talking about their role in Jewish society. So don't leave here saying, Brother Steve doesn't like children, and West Laurel doesn't like children. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in Jewish society, they were not uh, very high in the order of, of important people. So the point is that Jesus takes this lowest on the social pecking order child to make his point. In verse 48, we read, And said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So he challenged their whole paradigm and their whole understanding of what constituted greatness. What God thinks is greatness is what is greatness, okay? <laughs> if he differs from us, we need to go with him. And what he thinks greatness is, is service, obedience, and humility. So is God more impressed with what I am doing right now or with what Kat, Darlene, and Christy are doing right now? Is he more impressed with Jimmy's service on Sunday morning that everyone sees or the work that Pat does in the office when nobody sees? I think this should show us that God is most pleased, not by position or job title or visibility, but by the obedience and the humility with which we perform our service. Which of us is serving with the most obedience and humility? Well, we don't know, right? We can't see the heart, so we don't know. But God can see the heart and does. So what we do to service... In, is important. Whatever, however we're called to serve God is vitally important, whether other people see it and perceive it and thank you or not. Our importance is not on how much spotlight we get. It'll be easier to avoid pride if you're not actually in the spotlight. And that's why it's critically important that churches don't take spiritually immature people and, and put them in high-profile positions. Because they will get prideful. And the Word tells us that. And says, hey, look, don't take, a, don't take a young person in the faith, a new believer, and put them in an exalted kind of position. Because pride will get the best of them. Now, please don't think this means we should not tell people they are appreciated. It's our job to appreciate these folks. It's their job to be humble. So I want to be the best preacher on the planet. I won't get there. But I also won't stop trying, right? Because God has called me to this. So I'm going to try to improve. I'm going to try to improve every single week because I want to get better at what God has told me to do. Now, am I going to get to uh, Adrian Rogers' level? Nope. <laughs> that's okay. I'm going to keep working toward getting as good as I can get. And that's not a pride thing. What is a pride thing is when we start comparing ourselves to one another and to the preacher down the street, or the music guy down the street, or the other Christian sitting in the pew with us. So pride makes us just think we're better than other folks. But pride also makes us tribal. Now let me explain what I mean there. I tried to think of another word, but I couldn't think of one that was, was strong enough. <laughs> we, we looked at cliquish, but I thought, no, nah, that's not strong enough. So it makes us tribal. Uh, you know, white versus black. I mean, I graduated in 1990. I'm going to be 49. <laughs> I graduated in 1990, and racism in our country was far less of a problem in 1990 than it is in 2020. Because we have become so tribal. We like those who are like us and everyone who is not like us. They're the enemy. 
You know, we act like that sometimes in denominations. You say, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Baptist and we are superior to the Methodists and the Presbyterians. Now, I choose to be a Baptist because really I think we are right. <laughs> That's why I'm a Baptist, right? But I don't look down on those other guys. I say, well, they're doing the best they can with what they understand. I'm doing the best I can with what I understand. And that's why we have these denominations. But we don't want to shun working with them, right? You know, Reformed people versus more Arminian people in the Southern Baptist Convention sometimes can't get along, which is ridiculous. You know, teetotalers and those who drink in moderation can become embattled because the teetotalers can say, I'm more righteous, and the people who drink in moderation can say, well, I can read the Word and understand it better than you, and I'm more mature than you. So they can fight with one another. Read with me Luke nine forty nine through 50. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Now I will quickly and completely and gladly separate from somebody over heresy. Uh, There's some things we just can't get along with. If someone gets the gospel wrong, we can't partner with them to share the gospel. Uh, But I'll gladly work with folks who don't think like me on secondary issues. You know, some folks uh, won't work with anybody that doesn't agree with them on everything. Those people cause unnecessary division. I mean, there was a guy who, (laughs) in a church where I was, that disagreed with me on something and just refused to work with me and had to leave. Uh, I I was happy to work with him, although we had a little disagreement on a secondary issue. But he just couldn't stand it, and he left. And that's that tribal mentality. Pride makes us the only one that is right. And everybody who doesn't conform to us, it gives us that my way or the highway attitude. You either conform yourself to my thinking or I can't work with you. And there's no need for that. There was no need in that situation, certainly. I was happy to work with him, but he just just wouldn't have it. So pride can cause division on secondary and tertiary issues. Now, primary issues of whether the gospel is, is by grace alone and faith alone, those are important first-tier things that we've got to agree with somebody if we're going to work with them. But those secondary issues, we don't have to see eye to eye on. Now, let me stress again, we should never accommodate heresy, but we also shouldn't call secondary issues heresy when they're not. We need to compete with people who get the gospel wrong. And work with people who get the gospel right. So there is a uh, Jehovah's Witness place on Wansley that I pass frequently. I do want to compete with them. <laughs> I don't want to compete with First Baptist. I don't want to compete with Audubon Drive, right? So we need to compete with people that don't get the gospel right. And you know, tribalism is showing up so much these days in, in our racial issues. Uh, like I said, in 1990, it was nothing like this. I mean, you go back to 1960, I wasn't around, but, you know, sure, there was actual racism occurring, bad stuff happening. By 1990, we had made so much progress that it wasn't really an issue. I mean, you know, there was a time in America we could watch Sanford and Son, and, and white people could watch it, and black people could watch it, and we could all laugh at it. And then we could watch uh, All in the Family, and white people could laugh at it, and black people could laugh at it, right? (laughs) We weren't nearly as divided and angry and bitter as we are these days. 
So the root of that division, the root of that tribalism is pride. Now on some things, social issues, we can even work together with people who don't get the gospel right. Um, We can work with our Catholic friends toward religious liberty or a pro-life cause, right? Because we agree on those fundamental things. So this tribalism is being supported and expounded every single day. If you watch television, uh, CNN, places like that, you'll understand that the white male is the pinnacle of evil. And the more you diverge from that, the more uh, characteristics of, of virtue that you have. If you are female, that counts for you. If you are uh, not white, that counts for you. And then if you are uh, sexually deviant, that certainly counts for you. And so that tribalism has, has come together in a confederacy and is working as a political unit now because it's favorable for them to work that way. But it is so heinously against the kingdom of God and the gospel of God. So whenever we interact with that tribalism, we need to do everything we can to get rid of it in the minds of those we talk with. Um, The gospel makes it level ground at the foot of the cross. There's no Gentile or Jew or male or female or bond or free. We are all the same in need of the same grace. Well, pride also makes us very judgmental. When we are right, it is actually kind of hard to be humble. (laughs) And I I don't mean that in jest. I'm just saying that we do get the gospel right. Uh, And there are people who get the gospel wrong. And I'm not going to say, hey, I'm humble enough to develop some wrong understanding of the gospel to accommodate you. So it, it can sort of make us prideful when we are right about things. Now, we do know the truth about God's Word and have had our minds renewed in it by studying it. And I'm sure there are things wrong in my theology. I just don't know what they are. And if I did know what they are, I would fix them immediately, right? So we have the gospel right. But if we don't understand why we have the gospel right, that can lead to pride. Look with me for a second in verses 51 to 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This is funny, isn't it? John, we think of John as this sweet old guy. I mean, he used to recline on Jesus' breast. He was the beloved disciple. He outlived everybody else and was this old man on the island of Patmos writing Revelation. And yet here he is in his younger sons of thunder days saying, hey, how about we call down fire on these folks? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Now, should the Samaritans have rejected Jesus? Of course not. But James and John seem to have forgotten that except for the grace of God, they would have been in the same boat as these Samaritans. If you want to fix a judgmental spirit, think on these verses. Let me give you just a few. John 6, 44. No one can. It doesn't say no one does. It doesn't say no one might. 
It says no one can. That means the ability, the possibility. It is impossible because you put no one. So no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That should kill some of our pride about being right and being in the faith. And he said in verse uh, John 6, 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So in these two verses, John has explained, look, if you're a believer, if you've come to me, it is because the Father has given you that. The Father has drawn you. And so we who are saved can't go, man, we are smarter than they are, right? Because that's just not true. And we see it spelled out really clearly right here. In Acts 16, 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Now listen to how she received God. Listen to how she was saved. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So did she get there on her brilliance, on her virtue? No, she got there because the Lord opened her heart. John fifteen sixteen. You did now, if this isn't clear, I don't know what's going to be clear. So y'all look up, pay attention to this. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Now I've got so many more of these that I could have included, right? (laughs) But for the sake of time, I did not. So if we really see that we are saved, not because we're smarter, not because we're more moral, or, or that we're better in any way, then we can have a spirit of service and obedience and humility rather than pride. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He, uh, he's far more eloquent than I. If any man be saved, he is saved by divine grace and by divine grace alone. The reason of his salvation is not to be found in him, but in God. We are not saved as the result of anything that we do or that we will, not will do, but that we purpose, he means by will there, but we will and do as the result of God's good pleasure and the work of his grace in our hearts. No sinner can prevent God, that is, he cannot go before him, cannot anticipate him. God is always first in the matter of salvation. He is before our convictions, before our desires, before our fears, and before our hopes. All that is good, or ever will be good in us, is preceded by the grace of God and is the effect of a divine cause within. He's right. So we need to start loving our mission field instead of despising them. That's a struggle. It's a struggle for me, and I know it's a struggle for you. If someone is still blinded by the God of this world, they're going to love the things you hate and vice versa. Do we battle them for the culture? Well, certainly we stand for life. We vote our convictions. We give money to causes that we believe in and that they hate. But they are not the enemy. They are the captives and the slaves of the enemy. They don't need conquered They need emancipated by the gospel. Now we talked at length about how difficult, how really impossible it is for us to 
love our enemies without the Spirit of God intervening and changing our hearts. Nevertheless, that is what we are commanded to do. And it helps if we see them for what they are. They're not the enemy. They are the blind captives and slaves of the enemy. They don't need conquered. They need released. If we're not careful, we'll develop the spirit of Jonah. The one in the Bible, not the wonderful grandson. Jonah did not want to preach to Nineveh. Now, why did he not want to? Well, he didn't want God to be merciful to them, right? We read in Jonah 4, 1 through 3, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So why is he so mad? He's mad because he was incredibly successful at bringing revival to Nineveh. And he doesn't think they deserve it. Now sometimes we can feel that way about our enemies. While God feels like this. Down in verse 11 of Jonah 4, it says, And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? So he's saying, look, Jonah, these guys aren't the enemy. These guys don't know which hand is which. (laughs) They are enslaved, they are blinded, and I need to have mercy on them. Not the judgment that you have. It takes a lot of pride for us to decide that we can judge better than God can. Romans twelve nineteen tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now most of us know that verse, right? But we think, okay, so God, vengeance is yours, but here's how and when you need to execute it. And we'll advise him on that. So is it? Is it kosher to call down fire on our enemies? Well, no. Romans 12, 21 says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, that's easy to say, isn't it? And impossible to do without the Spirit. Pride will make us really judgmental. But understanding, were it not for grace, that would be us can change that resentment and that judgmental spirit into one of understanding and compassion. So let me tell you, these, uh, these disciples uh, were, were tripped up by pride, and so we very frequently are. You know, they were being told by Jesus that, hey, I'm about to be handed over into the hands of men, and they were comparing notes on which of them was the greatest in the kingdom. Pride doesn't just make us silly, it makes us downright foolish. Uh, And it's a constant battle, a constant battle for all of us. Because by nature, we are self-promoting creatures, aren't we? I want to get credit for stuff. I want people to pat me on the back and tell me, good job. I think we all do. What we need to watch for is becoming so prideful that we think we're better than anybody else. And that we can't any longer have compassion on those who the Lord has not yet changed. Because if we, if we hate our mission field, we're not going to be able to reach our mission field. I mean, I think that ought to be pretty self-evident, right? Uh, 
So guys, we can, we can rage against injustice. We can, we can uh, grieve over millions of babies being aborted. We should grieve over that. But we also have to stop treating people that don't think like us like enemies or we just won't be able to reach them. We can't be deciding to call down fire on them. We need to call down the blessing of heaven and the gospel on them. 